Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast still daring to dream of 1.5. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. <laughs> hey, Corey. I'm also joined by all-round good egg, Shaz Rahman. Hello, Shaz. Hello. COP27 concluded recently. We're going to talk about what was discussed and is there a political solution to climate crisis. Spoiler alert, listeners, I didn't talk with Shaz before agreeing the intro to the show, so my intro is probably much more optimistic than we're going to be. talked about COP26 didn't we last year Shaz we did and that was in Glasgow Boris Johnson do you remember Boris Johnson he was the Prime Minister at the time he wanted to focus on cash and coal and cars and to be fair to disgraced former Prime Minister Boris Johnson he did show up sometimes he even was awake and spoke in sentences and seemed to try and put the diplomatic effort of the UK government behind those talks. Obviously, we've got a new prime minister, a new but one prime minister, in fact, actually. What was Rishi Sunak's attitude to COP27? Well, he wasn't going to go. Yeah, he, did. he decided it wasn't uh, you know, a good way to spend his time originally uh, until he basically got shamed, I think, by his own party, which, which says an awful lot where the Conservative Party are the ones shaming you into actually going. Yeah. Um, I think there's a good contrast between how Boris Johnson dealt with it and how Rishi Sunak dealt with it. Like Boris Johnson's a big, his infrastructure person is that he likes to be seen with a hard hat doing things. And last year, COP26 was a good example for him to be seen to be doing something and be seen to be in power and very manly and he's going to solve the crisis. And because he's there, it's all going to be better. Whereas Rishi Sunak just has an entirely different set of priorities. Yeah, and for Johnson in particular, in regards to this, it's a, an opportunity for him to prove that Britain is world-beating at something. Like, everything we had to be world-beating at something. Couldn't just be good, we had to be world-beating. But I suppose now that Boris Johnson is mercifully a former Prime Minister, is it also part of the Churchill fantasy as well? So, you know, after being Prime Minister, Churchill went to fourth Missouri and talked about an iron curtain descending across the continent. And so Johnson, when Sunak said he wasn't going to go, Johnson was still going to go, like he's some sort of revered statesman who leaders of the world look up to and go, oh, we've got to do something that Boris Johnson's asked us to do it. And, and maybe that's part of it as well. It's a sort of ego thing. It's also that, yeah, the weird argument about whether the king could go or not. Yeah, because yeah, cause didn't Sunak try and get uh, uh, the king to basically not go, even though it was something he was planning to do anyway. Whilst he was like, if 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 uh, if the queen hadn't have died, he would have gone as as the Prince of Wales. And he basically got told, tried to tell the king, "You can't do that because it makes me look bad." Yeah, because that's the really weird thing is that maybe you could have framed it like, "Well, I'm I'm here saving the economy, maybe, but the king is very very important, and the king will be will be will brief together and." Maybe the king, along with Alex Sharma, will deliver our, deliver our message, and the king can be a good figurehead for our talks. Yeah, because yeah, because from from the perspective of like international diplomacy, it's the first big major outing um, for His Majesty. Like he's known to be quite passionate about environmental affairs and things like that. So 
that could have been quite a nice way potentially to handle it uh basically just say i'm not going to be there because there's other things that i need to do but our message is going out we are backing this and it's being pushed out by our new by our new monarch that would have been a very sensible approach that isn't what they did though they just told told his uh, his royal highness that they can't go uh and uh, then got bounced into it after boris johnson threatened to embarrass him by turning up himself I love the idea of somehow Alok Sharma being King Charles's sidekick. That's like he's his wingman or something. That is a detective show that I would watch. <laughs> I, I think the interesting thing, just to delve into uh, the criminology of UK politics rather than talk about the future of the planet, which obviously is much less interesting, is the. I think the interesting thing about this monarch as opposed to the previous monarch is we know that Charles was blocked from going and the, that, the fact that that leaked out and the palace let that leak out, I think is quite significant. Yeah. Having said that, you know what's more significant than who briefs journalists at the palace? That's the planet shares. You know, Just to remind me, case, in case I forget in the last 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what have you done recently at Friends of the Earth, honestly? Um, so COP27, the idea was to try and keep 1.5 degree alive on, on paper, at least, wasn't it? Because if the planet heats by more than 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, that leads to terrible spiralling effects happening, doesn't it? And I think we talked about that last year. Yeah. Therefore, uh, and the COP27, it wasn't in Glasgow, it was COP27 was held in Egypt this year in uh, what I believe is called the Tonino Lamborghini Convention Centre because nothing says... <laughs> Combating <laughs> climate change, like meeting in a convention centre named after a sports car. Not just any sports car, the most like luxurious yeah. and dystopianly, yeah, like carbon heavy sports car. And that's why it was renamed the International Convention Centre for the duration of the conference. And if you guys can't work out a metaphor for that, then there really isn't any point in continuing this podcast. So if you move on to the good news, then. <laughs> So the good news is, so one of the things that Boris Johnson, disgraced former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, tried to get through COP26, he wanted to talk about cash and coal and cars. And something that we did see, I think, or or at least was talked about at COP27, was cash, specifically loss and damage funds to support countries with climate-related disasters. Yes, so basically this is the first time that the international community has really agreed on climate justice as a concept. So it's obviously it's been in the debating for COP for the last 20 years, but it's now actually accepted as a policy. So, you know, you, you still can't be a climate refugee, for example. So if you if you are displaced in a flood, like you, you probably are if you live in a third of uh, Pakistan at the moment, you, you still can't be recognised as somebody who has been displaced. And what... This is as a first step of is basically saying you if you are from a rich country who has probably caused has a bigger responsibility in causing um, carbon emissions over the last 150 years that there is a responsibility from countries such as the UK and America and and China and Russia and and actually the people who are suffering most are the ones who can't adapt as well because they don't have the economic resources to who are most likely to be suffering and there has to be some kind of reparation so you can't have brazil for example you know, brazil is one of these examples isn't it because you've got the amazon rainforest and if you cut it down for lots of timber you get economic growth but 
you know, Amazon, you know, as the lungs of the earth, if you then remove one of our biggest CO2 takers in, you're going to exacerbate the climate emergency. And, and there's now a recognition that those that have caused the damage should be the ones that have paid, the ones paying for the, basically the, the help that the poorer nations in terms of things like GDP and climate resources are going to need. Are there, are there any funds attached at the moment or is it purely a hypothetical thing? Well, money has been suggested, but you know, the, you can have the next year of wrangling as to what that means practically. You know, yeah. who, who gets what where? Yeah, it, it's going to be, uh, effectively, it's, it's, it's the sort of announcement which is a good thing uh, in and of itself, but it's, it's going to be something that gets shunted almost into the back end of international development aid policy agenda of we need to, we're, we're committed to spending this amount of money in theory at least um, and therefore we, we can and we've committed as a country to do this as well therefore it should be a, a the sort of thing which then guides the decision making on that sort of thing on a, on a lot of the more bilateral uh, kind of like relationships and aid agreements that we that, okay. that, that we have I would have thought as the basis rather than there being a we're going to throw a load of money into a big central pot for the UN to then you know, give give to whoever it need is needed. Yeah, it would work because actually, uh, famously, the UK government is very generous at the moment with its UK aid commitments. Well, indeed, yes. Is it 0.5% now? Yes. Yeah. When I think 0.7% is, is what you're meant to... Yeah. That's, that's the sort of recognised standard, isn't it? Even of that 0.5%, some of the things that are being classed as aid aren't really... So yeah, it's tied into contracts and some not necessarily like helping to rebuild communities that have been destroyed by a tornado. It's been tied in with contracts for maybe, shall we say, suspicious partners. So the, the money might be rerouted through ways it, it wouldn't have been under even say it as much as you might want to criticise Eric Cameron. And obviously we do. He was committed to 0.7% and he did believe in that as a principle. Mm. Um, and, and there's a definite need for it, as you say. So you've got a third of Pakistan, I think, at the moment is still underwater, isn't it? Yeah. Because of the, the flooding there, which I think is still visible from space, isn't it? So there's still pr- some pretty horrific situations. You've also had massive floods in Africa, haven't you, in lots of parts of Africa. So I think Nigeria's had its biggest floods ever. And I think scientists this week have said that it's definitely climate change exacerbating those floods. And I suppose it's also countries like Somalia, isn't it? Which was a, an interesting example that they, I think that the delegates there talked at COP27. So there's a drought in Somalia at the moment, which is causing crop failure, which is then causing uh, people not to have enough food. But you've also got a situation where 30% of people in Somalia don't have access to electricity. So I'm guessing you also, as part of this, this funding, you need to make sure that there's a way that those countries can get renewable electricity that their citizens need as well. Yeah, rather than industrialising like the UK did in 1880s through lots of coal, because coal is easy to access and is cheap and is very reliable. So how are you, how are you going to, if you're going to move a country like Somalia to say, you know, there's lots of sun there, right? But putting that infrastructure for a grid with solar is very very difficult and maybe you'd have a big city which is very far away from your where your solar is being produced and how do you 
match up those things and it's the, the all of the infrastructure around renewables is, is very difficult and because so uh, renewables are intermittent you have to have something around them to wrap around them to make sure that you don't have the risks of blackouts so that's where there's two things isn't it one of them is you don't want to kick away the ladder so yeah. in a sense we're living in the uk which did not too far from where we're recording this uh dig up lots of coal burn lots of coal and industrialize and we're now saying to countries no sorry you can't do that um even that's the fastest way to develop economic developments yeah but i suppose we'll talk probably later on about um the economic incentives on renewable fuel but one problem i suppose is is setting that up and actually it's about giving countries the opportunity to kickstart that so that's going to be talked about mainly at next year's cop isn't it and that's going to be held in the united arab emirates the united arab emirates irony of ironies um the world's biggest oil exporter and that is a good segue to talk about the bad news so the bad news is that there wasn't really any agreement on reducing fossil fuels and it turns out steve that fossil fuels are what cause climate change if you burn them then yeah Mm -hmm. except well they they couldn't really make an agreement could they chance about no and what the well, the general secretary of the UN has basically said 1.5 degrees is now not a realistic target anymore, and unless we dramatically change our habits now, when we should have done it 20 years ago, when actually that's when the the realization should have been, um, 1.6, 1.7, 1.8, 1.92 is also going to pass by. So we're not. So the good news is we're no longer likely to go to four degrees or 3.5 degrees, and you know that's Armageddon. That's basically the dystopian films you see. What at the moment we're likely is maybe two, two to two point five, mm. and what that means is, say in thirty years' time, those events you've just mentioned, rather than just being everything's on fire at once and it's the end of humanity very quickly, is those events which used to be you know one in a generation, one every thirty, forty, fifty years. Now it's like a one in three, and then that snowballs, and then it becomes every year in a country that may not have the resources to deal with it, will have something like that happen. And then your neighbours may have a, a drought a month later. And so the bad news is um, we don't have a realistic pathway to have a sustainable level of climate change in, in, a, in a really weird phrasing. The good news is that when we, have, we are going to probably avoid the worst case scenarios. So we're not going to end up in the road. We're just going to end up in a slightly worse version of what we've got at the moment. Yeah, so, yeah. Like a Chuck Lorre sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, so, if, 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 so I suppose if you're one of the, the wealthier nations and you, you know, for some countries there might be opportunities. So Russia might get access to lots of Siberian oil that it's never been able to get to before. Then maybe actually, if, you, if you're wealthy enough, maybe you can mitigate some of those things and carry on as normal. So where's the incentive to drastically and absolutely transform your whole society to get to what 1.6 1.7 1.8 now so and then when you've got the likes of bp being the delegate for is it mauritania Uh, the bp one of the BP, bp executives was an actual delegate on behalf of like a small african country and you've still got all of these electric vehicle companies front and center because you know, well, we can't radically transform society too much. So, for heaven forbid, people have to get a bus. They can still have their cars, but we'll just make slightly less 
losing cars. So I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? So it's not just... So part of the reason it's been this thing, it's not just fossil fuel producing countries. You mentioned Russia, uh, we've mentioned the UAE, um, Saudi Arabia as well, or countries that essentially run their economies by being able to... Extract resources cheaply. Yes, and then sell it. And then, yeah, it's all... And and then essentially fund an economy and an army and a welfare state off the back of it. It's also all the other corporate stuff. Yeah. Can I, can I make a football point? Make a football point, Chaz. So we're currently having the World Cup, which we've been enjoying this evening. And, um, I don't know about enjoying. That is a strong this. word. That was not a great <laughs> match. We're recording this on the evening of the uh, England-America match, which yeah. was not... Yeah. So Qatar 2022 is going to be the most carbon-intensive World Cup ever because it's basically built all of the infrastructure from zero. Only one of the stadiums existed before, what, eight years ago, maybe. And so environmentally, you know, Qatar is saying it's going to have, it's going to be the, the greenest World Cup ever. It's going to be, you know, carbon neutral. And the way it's done that is by basically just paying a lot of carbon offsets that have very dubious sources. But also there was an academic on the Today programme actually talking about the calculations of that. And apparently when... Uh, the Qatar did their sort of carbon footprint. All the flights were one way and not return flights. And assuming that you... So you're having to fly to and from the ground, but that's not really being taken care of. It's also the yeah, the building of the stadiums isn't really factored into that cost as well. So that they're almost assuming that you can fly in, across the desert into the ground and then walk or cycle back. Yeah. So I mean, in one sense, it could be because it's basically all within a very small distance. But if you had that infrastructure in a country that had a developed football stadium, like if you had in a, very, in a different country, then you wouldn't have to build all of these stadiums for 200 billion. And it's also, it's, it's spending 200 billion pounds on a World Cup, which I think is probably a factor of 10 more expensive than any other World Cup in history. Easily. For... Uh, you, you've got, uh, I think it was John Soap from the news agent saying that you've got people in the, he's spoken to people, who've spoken to people, who've spoken to people, who've spoken to people in the Qatari government who said they're now regretting bidding for the World Cup because of the focus on LGBTQ plus rights and confiscating rainbow hats and all that sort of nonsense. Um, but actually, you could have put the £200 billion into a loss and damage fund or actually try to mitigate some of these effects, but instead you built eight stadiums and then magically increased their capacity by 12% on the day of the match. Yeah. And, and they're air-conditioned as well, like how, how carbon-intensive that's going to be. But what happens to these stadiums? Like, they don't have local football teams that could fit 40,000 people in them on a weekly basis. So they've built all of this infrastructure. Um, and and that's where this is the difference between them and, say, Brazil... Or them and say South Africa also built stadiums that went into disrepair pretty quickly, or Greece with, with the Olympics is that they don't care because they've got so much oil wealth that you know you can just write it all off as a vanity project and it doesn't actually have consequences. Speaking of consequences, then I think last year I was trying to be quite upbeat, or I was trying to be quite upbeat anyway, about the use of politics and COP to try and knock heads together and get stuff done. This year, it's much harder to do that, even with the, the sort of the, the fact you've got a loss and damage fund set up. Actually, 
if you're looking at sort of climate mitigation, it's going to be hard to do that through, just through COP. Is it going to happen away from COP? Are we going to see other international institutions and countries essentially trying to make progress on their own? Yeah, I, I think you probably will. Certainly with the um, bigger powers. So I, I can absolutely see the US, China, um, to a lesser degree, the EU, if they can actually agree on an approach between themselves, uh, kind of taking that sort of approach to their international diplomacy. Um, as And as we were saying, like in terms of those, like the mitigation, the aid and things that could go to people, it becomes a a tool that can be used more generally as part of wider diplomatic um, uh, approaches and foreign policy. So, for instance, China, one of the, the things that they've been very good at in terms of like making themselves um, friends with uh, Africa, African nations in particular, is they've basically just been kind of like handing out loans at really good rates to uh, to African nations um, so that they can build up those relationships with them. I could see a similar thing kind of happening uh, with that as well, where the, the requirements to be seen to be doing things on the international stage in this regards, um, combined with the kind of like the the PR benefits that come from it as well, I could easily see both the uh, the Chinese government and potentially the US, depending on what happens in terms of the next presidential election, kind of like taking that approach. Um, China for definite, but US mm, <laughs> depends on what happens. Oh, yeah. Biden did uh, have the big green revolution. Oh yeah, yeah. And they are spending billions and billions on it. Uh, what what I think, and we did say this last year as well, is that you know you remember we were the Kyoto Protocol and we were going to save the world and it was going to be like we're going to have this landmark moment and everyone's going to change their mind. It, it doesn't work like that. COP is a process. Next year's COP is part of that same process. And every year you make progress and you don't see this as this is all or nothing. We we have a process and COP is part of it and there'll be trade negotiations and there'll be other things going on simultaneously that where the, the details can be filled in. So we shouldn't see this as a like failure in the sense that it's all over. We're, we're all going to like suffer the consequences. We need to see this as a sense that Okay, we've made progress here on this thing, and whilst we wait for next year, we're going to work on them, as as Steve said, through trade and through actually the macroeconomics of it. Because you know we've had forty degrees here this year, and we're not we're not set up for it. So um, as as we suffer the consequences, you don't have climate deniers anymore because you know it's it's ridiculous. You have climate delayers, and those are the people who are the the BP executive saying, well, we have funded these solar panels over here while still drilling new oil fields over there. And and, and that's a different approach that as campaigners and as societies we need to address. Or I suppose it's the, the group in the the Tory party. And Nigel Farage as well, I think, has called for a referendum on net zero, however the hell that will work, because you, you laugh, but it's definitely going to happen. We're definitely going to lose it. Um, because and essentially, yeah, as you say, it's delaying because it's it's almost just throwing our hands up and saying the cost of doing all of this would be too much, and it's just an excuse for socialists to go and. If only, if only all of the things that we needed to do to kind of like get ourselves down to net zero were also really good capital investments in the British economy 
and society as a whole over the long term. If, if only that were true. Well, they're not, so we're going to have to move on. So you, so you talk about the US and China. As you said, so America at the moment is pushing the World Bank to change its financial model to, uh, I suppose, away from the sort of Washington consensus stuff of the 80s and 90s to be about climate justice more often. I mean, is, that's, as you say, it's happening under Biden. It will happen, I'm guessing, under whoever is, if there's a Democratic president in 2024. It's hard to see that happening under a Republican presidency of, just to pick a name out of random, Kanye West. (laughs) (laughs) Will he be an independent? Who knows? Like, he's announced he's going for it. I could absolutely absolutely see him trying to go on to the Republican ticket. But, like, he tried to get Trump, apparently, to be his VP. (laughs) More to the general point, yeah, it almost doesn't really matter who the Republican candidate is. If the Republican, if the Republicans win that election, could be Trump, could be Kanye, could be DeSantis, could be pretty much any Republican. I struggle to see how they get behind any course of action in that regards. Um, so yeah, I think it's very much a case of, to a degree, it almost doesn't matter who the Democratic candidate is. The Dems will kind of run with it to a degree although obviously there will be some variations but they will at least make an effort whilst unless there's a the, the republicans are a party of climate deniers yeah. i think um yeah. the, the one no positive note on that though is you know with the federal system california will just ignore this yeah the state level, the, so they'll just carry on anyway the, yeah, yeah the states can the states can and will just go and do their thing and a lot of actually the uh, uh the states which have Basically, the where where that that control most of the American economy, California, New York, all of those sorts of places. Those are the places that will actually take action um, yeah. on their own back. And uh, I mean, the economics economics work differently in America because you have cheap fracking, and see, we don't really have, we don't well, we don't have that here. But you know, California going massively in wind and solar is bringing down its electricity prices. You know, those capital investments that Steve just jokes about. If you make them. And you make them now, then they are much cheaper than oil and gas exploration, yep. especially in this country. You know, renewables are much, 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 much cheaper than extracting new oil fields. Jokes about capital investment. You don't get those in other politics podcasts. <laughs> um, <laughs> eat your heart out, Alistair Campbell. Just moving on to China then. I mean, I'm sceptical about China's investment in lots of countries across Asia and Africa and a Belt and Road Initiative and whether that's actually a force for good in the world, to be honest. But... If you want some good news, I suppose America and China did have bilateral talks at COP about how they could work together on climate change, which is a massive change in direction, not just from the Trump years, actually, but from the early years of the Biden presidency as well. So there is a little bit of hope there, yeah. maybe. Yeah, it's a good sign. Um, and also other side deals away from COP. I think Indonesia, which is, a, again, a big coal-burning nation at the moment, they were offered twenty billion pound, twenty billion dollars by a bunch of rich countries to try and kick the coal habit and move to renewables. So I suppose you're right, Charles. It's, it's part of that process, and it is happening. Just maybe slower than we'd like, a bit later than we'd like, and it we're sort of in damage control stage. Yeah, but yeah. So you know, Indonesia has all that lovely, lovely rainforest, and if we can get them to stop cutting it down, and we can instead have them use renewable energy, which Obviously, as we said earlier, the technologies are all there. It's just how do you introduce them into new markets when coal is just seen as a default way to do it? And we can. And there's actually a pathway now. Though the point we we have to keep repeating is we know how to do it. 
let's go and do it rather than just relying on the trusted power structures that have got us into this mess in the first place. So is it is it a case of needing the political will or will it sort of happen, I don't want to say inevitably, but given you've got a few investors who are saying actually it makes more sense to invest in renewables now in the long term and given what's happened with Ukraine and how Russian gas doesn't really seem like the sure bet that obviously seemed 10 or 15 years ago. How much of a shove is that shift to renewable going to need? Well, the economics of it, as we, saw, as we mentioned earlier, are now in favour of renewables. What, what has to catch up is the infrastructure around it. If you've got lots of wind and solar and, may, and maybe hydro, how are you going to demand? That's how are you going to manage that demand when... Those, some of those things work really well in winter, some of those things work really well in summer, and how are you going to bridge those gaps? And that's where the world is at the moment, that it knows the path. It's just now we've, we've got to get a consensus how to achieve that path, and that's where, you've got to, that's where we've got to campaign and fight against those climate delayers who basically will continue to try and make a profit until there's no profits we made or there's no planets we made yeah and i think even if you kind of like strip that out and just put put like the climate delays to the side you're still left with a situation where there is no out of the package solution for 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 what you're talking about that it's unique to every single country because every single country's geography um infrastructure previous infrastructure investment all of these other things is unique to it and therefore every country has to go through and solve the problem for themselves and that is probably one of the one of the biggest challenges in that it's not just a case of we can just go and now we all do this together it's a very hard very tricky very nitty-gritty set of detailing for every government to try and resolve and it's a set of nitty-gritty details that most people aren't interested in on like a kind of like a top-level kind of way of viewing things outside of, oh, we should do something about climate change. So it's a collective effort to make sure that everyone's out for themselves? Yeah, pretty much. Perfect. Well, you've also got to make the positive case for it. So (laughs) (laughs) So a world where public transport is really reliable and you can get from the suburbs into the city centre with a 10-minute train service, that's much nicer than spending an hour and a half driving in a ring road being really angry at half seven in the morning. And if you get those things balanced and you make it make it harder to drive and harder by putting levies on things like coal and you make the alternatives cheaper, then while change is difficult for people, once they realise it's actually better, they won't want to go back to what it was before. So, you know, there's the economic drivers, there's also the social and the political drivers and they have to work together and they are working together. So we are getting progress and things are changing Obviously, you know we have we have the negatives like that, but there's the, we are we can only go in one direction of travel now because the the economics of it mean it doesn't actually work to go back to the nineteen nineties. The economics of your household budget, Steve, I think mean that it's inevitable that people are going to want to support this on Patreon, and if they did want to do that, where would they have to go? Well, they would go to patreon.com slash not enough champagne. Few pounds every month. Uh, goes towards us to help us run the costs of our delightful little podcast here. Uh, yeah, if you uh, sign up, you get access to unique episodes, uh, episodes which go out early um, for uh, for our champagners over there, as well as a whole host of other bits and pieces. So yeah, 
Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash not enough champagne. Our Twitter handles at no champagne pod. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune for Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioto. I'm at Acoustic Radical. At Shazwoman30. Happy plotting. <laughs>